Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our own humanity. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Gristwood, a notable tutor and royal author, about her new book, Game of Queens, which is a fascinating look at the women who ruled 16th century Europe. Just a couple of quick notes before we get started. Have you bought your 2017 diary or planner yet? If not, I've got a tutorific deal for you. Yes, I seriously just said tutorific. I said it. Oh my goodness. So go to tutorplanner.com, tutorplanner, and check out the planner that I've designed. It's got monthly and weekly pages, and it's full of tutor history. This week in tutor history, this month quotes from tutors that we love and musical listening suggestions with a special playlist that you can go to. So you can get it in hardcover, paperback. They're going to be shipped in December in time for Christmas if you order early. And there's also a PDF printable. So you can go to tutorplanner.com and check it out. Also, the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, and the Agora Podcast of the Month is the History of Islam. It's a really interesting look at Muslim history, at Islamic history, and you can find it at historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com or all of the normal, usual podcasty places. So finally, I've got links going up on the englandcast.com site for all of Sarah's information, links to her books, everything like that. So go to englandcast.com for that. So let me introduce you to Sarah Christwood now. She's a best-selling tutor biographer, former film journalist, and commentator on royal affairs. After leaving Oxford, Sarah Christwood began work as a journalist, writing at first about the theater, as well as general features on everything from gun control to Giorgio Armani. But increasingly, she found herself specializing in film interviews, Johnny Depp and Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese and Paul McCartney. And she has appeared in most of the UK's leading newspapers, The Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph, Daily and Sunday, and magazines from Cosmopolitan to Country Living and Sight and Sound to The New Statesman. Turning to history, she wrote two best-selling Tudor biographies, Arbella, England's Lost Queen, and Elizabeth and Lester. In September 2012, she brought out a new nonfiction book, Blood Sisters, The Women Behind the Wars of the Roses, which is also quite fabulous, I have to say. And Game of Queens has just come out. She's a regular media commentator 
Investigator on Royal and Historical Affairs. She's one of the team providing Radio 4's live coverage of the Royal Wedding and has since spoken on the Queen's Jubilee, the Royal Baby, and other royal stories for Sky News, Women's Hour, Radio 5 Live, and the CBC. Shortlisted for both the Marsh Biography Award and the Ben Pimlot Prize for Political Writing, she is a fellow of the RSA and an honorary patron of historic royal palaces. She and her husband, the film critic Derek Malcolm, live in London and Kent. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you about your new book, Game of Queens. Thank you. And I thought to start with, if you could give us kind of a basic introduction to the book, why you wrote it, and sort of mm. some of the changes and developments in the role of queens in this time period. Well, the 16th century, or the long 16th century, if you like, you know, from the 1480s through to the death of Elizabeth in the first in 1603, was a real age of queens. Large chunks of Europe were under the hand of, you know, either a queen regnant or a female regent. And that bit about in Europe is important because that's what really struck me. We all in England and, you know, the English-speaking countries, we know about the Tudors, we know about the Stuarts, but we don't know so much about what's happening in the non-English-speaking countries, basically. And yet those, those women in continental Europe had a huge influence, you know, not only on their own lands, but also on our queens. And that's rather got forgotten today. When I began looking at this, this subject, I was really struck also about the connections between the women, you know, about how lessons in power and how to use it must have passed from mother to daughter and mentor to protege. And there's some really quite surprising links there. And it, it seems like a lot of the changes with queenship were sort of wrapped up in in the religious changes as well. That's another mm. huge theme of this century. And I'm just thinking yes. when you talked about mentor and mentee, protege and, and mothers and daughters about, you know, Anne Boleyn being cast as a Protestant and being raised perhaps in a more humanist way. And yeah. then Catherine with her mother bringing in the Inquisition in Spain. And I just kind of wonder how religious tensions mm. kind of tie in with some of these changes? Yeah, I think there's a huge link there. I mean, I really do see the religious differences as having brought an end to, to, to that age of queens. Because earlier in the 16th, the 16th century, women really could have huge links across nations. Margaret of Austria, for example, could, would be not only, you know, she was, she was herself brought up by Anne de Beaujeu, the regent of France. Her mother-in-law was Isabella of Castile in Spain. But then she, she, she was a, by then sister-in-law to Catherine of Aragon and would later help Catherine of Aragon, you know, get legal advice for her troubles with Henry. But at the same time, Margaret of Austria helped raise Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn was at her court for a very important year or so. So early in the century, you've got all these links. And both Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon had huge links to the continent. But by the latter part of the century, think about the Tudor daughters, um, that had really gone. And the reason is, 
I think, religion. Religion is what separated not only Mary Tudor but Elizabeth from Elizabeth Tudor, her half-sister, but Elizabeth Tudor from most of the rulers on the, the female powerful women on the continent. Uh, and of course, you know, it, it, it was what made it impossible for her to live with Mary, Queen of Scots. Mm. So I, I really do see the religious divisions of the century as ripping apart the bonds between women. Mm. And something you mentioned there with these bonds, I was really interested in um, the ladies' piece that you talked about early on. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree it's fascinating. In fact, that was one of the, the, the real first sort of keys for the book, coming across this thing of which I'd never heard. The ladies' piece Cam, of, of Cambrai in uh, 1529, because it was celebrated between Margaret of Austria, the one about whom I've just been speaking, and Louise of Savoy. So Margaret of Austria was regent of the Netherlands on behalf of her nephew, Charles V. Louise of Savoy was the mother of the French king, Francois I, who'd also acted as his regent when he was away. And those two, I mean, obviously the Habsburgs and France were perpetually at enmity. You know, that was the other big theme of the 16th century. But at this point, you know, the end of the 1520s, the two women got together. And there are actually letters from Margaret of Austria to Louise of Savoy talking about how difficult it would be for the men because they had their own sense of honor to consider, which is a polite way of saying, you know, they were going to be posturing young bucks, basically, mm -hmm. but how easy it were for ladies to come forth in such an undertaking. Essentially, that if they kept their young men out of the way, they too, the women, and actually three women, because Louise bought her daughter, Marguerite of Navarre, could settle down and get the business sorted, as indeed they did. Mm. Yeah, and can you tell me a and little course, bit about that? Yeah. Like what they were able to solve? Yeah, well, Ma yeah, well, Margaret, Margaret of Austria and Louise of Savoy had known each other in youth, because um, they, they they had both been brought up partly in the care of that powerful French regent Anne de Beaujeu, a woman who actually wrote a manual of instruction, lessons for my daughter, a manual of instruction for powerful women. So they'd known each other in childhood. Then one of Margaret's three marriages had made her Louise's sister-in-law. So while on, on the one hand, one was Habsburg, one was French, they were on opposite sides of, you know, a political divide. On the other, they had all these old, it must have been shared memories, shared alliances. Mm -hmm. And I think, that, you know, I think that's really important. You see that time and time again. And you do see the women quite consciously calling those ties into play i mean the battle of sorry we're skipping skipping a, a, a nation but the battle of flodden between england and scotland where catherine of aragon acting as regent in the absence of her husband henry the eighth sent the english armies north to massacre the scottish armies at flodden margaret tudor catherine's sister-in-law henry the eighth's sister said that if only she and Catherine of Aragon could have met before the battle, perhaps it could have been avoided. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's interesting because you 
brought up Anne de Beaujeu, and I was really interested mm-hmm. in that manual she wrote and how she talked about how widows should try to keep their power and, yeah. and you know, not be pushed into marriages easily or just be really aware of, of the power that they mm. had. And mm. as I was reading, you know, it seemed like the women of France and the women of the continent were kind of listening to that a bit more. Of course, the women in England didn't have that experience during Henry's time. But um, Scotland... <laughs> It seemed like such a, a mm. different kind of experience, both with, with Margaret Tudor and then uh, later on. So can you tell me a little bit about the differences there? Yeah. yeah. No, I agree that Scotland is an odd one. Um, the irony is it did have two women who tried to, and to some degree did take control of the country. Margaret Tudor after the death of her husband, James, at Flodden, was, you know, it looked for a while as if she would at least be able to sort of, you know, head the Regency Council. But then she effectively threw it all away uh, by making a disastrous, and very unpopular in the country, second and then third marriage. In other words, she made exactly the mistakes that her granddaughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, made. Now, in between those two, there came Mary de Guise, who did rule the country as regent during part of the minority of her daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, reared in France, perhaps. She made a much better job of it. Uh, But nonetheless, she too had great difficulties. So maybe it does say something about the Scottish situation, because I agree that Scotland is a bit of a sort of standout here, but that may be down to, you know, the sort of turbulent nature of the country and the very different relationship that the nobles felt they had with the crown. Sure. But it is striking. I agree with you about the the widows thing, particularly. Um, Anne de Beaujeu's manual is, it's great, isn't Mm -hmm. it? I love the bit. I love some of the things like where she says, that, uh, you know, you no need to wear too much finery because past 40, no finery in your dresses can make the wrinkles on your <laughs> face disappear. <laughs> Never heard of Botox, had she? <laughs> but um, one of her series, she really is writing a lot for widows. And I think it's important for us now to remember that that in many ways was the time of a woman's power because before she married, she was effectively considered, you know, a child in the custody, the care of a male parent or guardian. While she was married, she was subordinate to her husband. But as the widow, it might be another story. And very many of these women did actually achieve their power in widowhood. Mm-hmm. And many of them, I may say, were fought tooth and nail against the eagerness of their male relations to marry them off again. I mean, Margaret of Austria's relations were pushing her to make a fourth marriage possibly with henry the henry um, henry the seventh of england but she very sensibly was having none of it mm-hmm. instead you know she 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 became not only regent of the netherlands but at the very heart of european diplomacy mm-hmm. and she clearly preferred her independent life that way mm-hmm. i i thought it was interesting 
just, you know, you talked about widows and their power and when mm. children, when women, when women were girls and how little power mm. they had. And, you know, I suppose that's for women of all classes, but you see it specifically with, with royalty. Mm. And I thought it was interesting. There was the line that Marguerite of Navarre wrote about how a good daughter has no right to a will of her own. Mm, and yes. so I was wondering just about the relationship you ta- you touched on it a little bit, these networks of women and how they were all related, mm. but between mother and daughter, there's the story mm. of how um, Margaret Beaufort tried to protect Margaret Tudor from having to go to Scotland too early. And yeah. Yes, and yes. so I just wondered like, how could young girls be protected by their mothers and grandmothers? And mm. what was that relationship like? Yeah, well, I think there's there's several things there, actually. Uh, one is, yes, as you say, you do see things like uh, Margaret Beaufort, who had herself been married off terribly early and become pregnant at 12. Um, you know, you do see her trying to protect her own granddaughter from a similar fate. In fact, James of Scotland may well have been, you know, um, a bit more humane and weighted rather, you know, unlike Margaret Beaufort's husband. But uh, the amount the women could do was limited. And, of course, often these women didn't have the chance to bring up their children themselves, not in a very hands-on way. And that brings that that really brings us on to the other point that yes i agree these young girls perhaps these princesses perhaps even more than ordinary young girls really were pawns that's you know the name of my book game of queens the chess mm-hmm. game pawns to be moved around the board for the advantage of their family and the trouble with that is that very very often that meant they'd be they'd be married off to cement a foreign alliance with someone who, a country which had been and would be again an enemy of the country where they were born. So actually Margaret Tudor in Scotland is the absolutely prime example. She was married off by her father, Henry VII, to the Scottish king to cement an alliance with Scotland. But Scotland and England were perpetually at enmity. And when the battle broke out, Flodden, you know, you had, you had the armies of Margaret's brother and her natal country killing her husband. So, but she was then felt she, the only person to whom she could appeal for help in ruling Scotland was that same brother, you know, who just massacred so, so many Scotsmen whose armies had. And so they really were caught in this impossible tug between loyalty to their natal family, whose ambassador, in a way, they were supposed to be, and loyalty to the country into which they'd married. Really an agonizing position to be in. Can you give me any examples of a woman, of a queen who handled it really well? was successful what who handled that that particular tug yeah who was able to kind of navigate it and was successful with that oh do you know i have to pause for a minute to think about this one um catherine of aragon of course managed it for a long time but then in the end as we all know all too well her marriage with henry broke down Mm -hmm. 
And then she was trying to appeal to her continental family and their connections, in a sense, to protect her against her husband. I mean, I think a lot of these women managed it, you know, managed it to a greater or lesser degree. Um, but of course, it depends, to, you know, to just how directly the, t- the, 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 the two countries were were at war. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, it also seems like some of them were really devoted to their brothers. I was thinking about Marguerite mm. of Navarre and also Margaret mm. Tudor to a certain extent. And I, it just, it seemed like a really interesting relationship. And I wonder, especially because they wouldn't think that they would have grown up together because the boys would have been kept separate, Mm. although with Henry and Margaret, I suppose they grew up together. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure that I'd see Henry and Margaret as being devoted, actually. If if anything, they were, you know, that was a rather rather fractious relationship. I mean, Henry VIII, though this is a little rich coming from him, blamed Margaret for not sticking with her her second marriage. Um, you know, said divorce was an outrageous thing. Marriage was sacred. Mm-hmm. Talk about pots and kettles. <laughs> um, but Marguerite of Navarre and her brother, I absolutely agree. That's a very weird relationship. Um, Marguerite, her mother, M- Louise, and Francois, Louise's son, Marguerite's brother, were so close they were known as the Trinity. And I mean, there's all sorts of letters from Marguerite when, for example, she finally became pregnant, writing about to, about how much she resented the baby in her womb because it might distract her from attention to her brother, writing time and again about you know how the interests of her child and her husband were as nothing compared to those of her brother. Well, you have to make some allowance, of course, you know, for the rhetoric of court writing of the 16th century, but. Even so, you can see why historians of the 19th century certainly suggested that the relationship between Marguerite and Francois was as incestuously close physically as it certainly was emotionally. That's probably going too far, but all the same, it, it was a weird one. But it, you know, it may not just be sisters and brothers, because Louise's, their mother's devotion to Francois was also extreme. Mm-hmm. And perhaps one has to say that for some of these women, not all, um, their their male relations were a kind of surrogate. You know, in France, which which subscribed to the Salic law, which said that a woman, you know, could never hold the throne. The closest that women could get to power was through a male relative. So perhaps there's something of that going on there too. Mm. And perhaps that's why you don't see it quite so much in England. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, you, that was all kind of early um, 16th mm. century. And then in England, mm. of course, there's the whole story with Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots, and yeah. that there has been lots of books written about that. But what sure. does... Oh, um, you know, what do you think, Elizabeth, how was all of this growing up, seeing all of this happening? Mm. How, how do you, what do you think she took from that? And how did that mm. influence her later with never getting married and 
everything. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because of course, Elizabeth's own, you know, mother Anne Boleyn died in her only in her early childhood. And apart from um, one, you know, her last stepmother, Catherine Parr, she didn't really have the experience I'm talking about of, you know, watching a woman handle power. Catherine Parr, of course, was briefly left as regent of England. Mm. But nonetheless, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I think one has to feel that someone as well educated as Elizabeth would have learned something, would have, you know, been aware of the continental experience would, you know, have, have, have read some of the books written by these women even. Mm-hmm. But one of the questions, well, one of the questions I asked myself was whether the relationship between Elizabeth Tudor and Mary Stuart could ever have gone differently. Could Elizabeth effectively have mentored Mary? But I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And I think, really, I think it was the religious question that did it there. Mm -hmm. Because the trouble was that, to Catholics, Elizabeth Tudor was a bastard and a usurper, and the throne of England belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't really ever get past that. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no way that if, if Elizabeth had... They talked about that, they fantasized about if only they two could get married. It would heal divisions, you know in their, their two countries. They joked about, you know, about um, they, they wrote of themselves as mother and daughter. Elizabeth at one point suggested that Mary, Queen of Scots, should marry her own favourite Robert Dudley, favourite and many said lover, Lester, mm-hmm. and that then they should all live in some sort of weird <laughs> menage a trois at Elizabeth's court. Yeah. I know. But it was never, it was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And really there was, you know, there was no way it could do mm-hmm. The other question, of course, is why, uh, why when Elizabeth Tudor did, by and large, man- manage triumphantly to rule England, I mean, even if the last years of her reign were not as successful as what came before, um, you know, we do look back on her reign as a, a real triumph of monarchy. And at the same time, Mary, Mary Stuart failed so spectacularly in Scotland. But I think, again... I'm sure it's partly temperament. Um, It may even be the fact that Mary, Queen of Scots, came to the throne and indeed began actually to try and rule so young, Mm -hmm. while Elizabeth was a very experienced Mm mid-twenties. But it is also, I think, you know, due to the the situation of of those two countries and the the relationship of the, um, you know, the, the parliaments and the the nobles to the monarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Scotland was much more. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where the nobles expect, you know, basically expected to have even more of a say in the handling of affairs. Mm-hmm. And plus, Mary, Queen of Scots, wasn't raised in in Scotland, so that no, would... that's right. She was raised. In, that's right. She was raised in France. She was raised to be Queen Consort of France, mm-hmm. not ruler of Scotland. And of course, she was a Catholic returning to a largely Protestant country. Yeah, I liked the part where I noticed the part where you talked about the the subjects that she excelled in were, you know, needlepoint and dancing and how she used to come to the council meetings and do her needlepoint. I know. I know. I mean, I'm sure Elizabeth I was also a good needlewoman, but I don't quite see her (laughs) stitching through council meetings. Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, were there any surprises that you found that you didn't expect as you were researching and writing this book? Well, yes. 
I mean, in, in a sense, the whole subject was a surprise to me when I first began, just to discover just how regularly chunks of Europe were ruled by a woman. I mean, the Netherlands, for example, Margaret of Austria was succeeded by a niece she'd raised, Mary of Hungary, who was succeeded by a niece she'd raised, mm. Margaret of Parma. So, you know, that's a, an amazing line of female regents. Mm. But in terms of individual personalities, yeah, I think the two surprises that I didn't know more about Margaret of Austria. I mean, she seemed to me such a compelling figure mm -hmm. and one with so many links, to, you know, to England mm -hmm. that it's very odd that more of us don't know about her because, you know, most of us really don't. Yeah. The other... The other surprise, I have to say, and a, a less pleasant one, was Marguerite of Navarre, who, because, you know, I knew of her as someone who Anne Boleyn regarded as, in some sorts, a mentor. I knew of her as a very prolific published author, as a thinker, as a leader of the group of noble ladies who were trying to reform the Catholic Church from within. Mm -hmm. So I kind of expected to really admire her. Uh, and of course I do, but in some ways. But I was a bit of surprised to find her quite such of a... Sorry, I can't think of a politer <laughs> way of saying it. Such an emotional mess. Because mm -hmm. she, she was. She was a, a deeply, you know, conflicted and contradictory figure. Yeah. And so that was a little bit of a shock, if I'm honest. Yeah, you, you, ta you talked at length about her relationship with her daughter as well and her daughter's marriage yeah. and... It seems like she... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There was a very, very strange um, situation where she seemed to be simultaneously forcing her daughter into a marriage, you know, to, to, for the benefit of her brother, King Francois, and then denying that she'd played any, you know, that she'd played any part of it, part in it. Um you know, so that the daughter was left saying, no, no, that she wouldn't marry this man. But her mother said that, you know, that, that, that she might should have her whip. It, 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 it's a nasty and a fairly incomprehensible story. Mm. And of course, the daughter was Jeanne d'Albray, who would herself play a huge part in, um, in the events of the latter part of the century. She was she inherited her, her father's small but strategically very important Pyrenean kingdom of Navarre and converted to the reformed religion. So and it was she and Catherine de' Medici trying to negotiate across the religious divides to make a marriage between Catherine's daughter and Jeanne's son, which um, provided the trigger for the massacre of St. Bartholomew's mm, Day. Mm -hmm. What's your... Um, do you have a favorite queen story? A favorite, oh, a favorite single story. Um, I don't know. I've got a lot of sort of favorite moments, if you like. I've got some favorite. I've got some favorite girly moments, actually. I rather love the fact that uh, when Catherine de Medici and Jeanne d'Albret were negotiating this marriage that was supposed to help heal France's religious divides, they took a day out uh, to go shopping around the boutiques in Paris <laughs> together disguised as bourgeois housewife. That's amazing. Um, and I do love the ladies' piece, the ladies' piece of, of, of 1529. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and I love something, I'm sorry, I'm quoting from memory, but something that Mary of Hungary wrote to her brother, Charles V, after the execution of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII's very speedy marriage to Jane Seymour. She wrote that it's to be hoped, if one can hope anything from such a man, that if this one, Jane, bores him, he'll find another way of getting rid of her. Because I think, you know, she said something like, I think it wouldn't be very much, you know, in most women's... Um, most women, women wouldn't much like it if this became cutting off your wife's head became the normal proceedings. Sure. And I thought that was a good, uh, a good rhyme. <laughs> exactly. Um, so where, where would you recommend, what other, obviously there's your book, but if people are interested in learning more about this, they should mm. read your book. But then if they want to go deeper, what other sorts of sources can you recommend to them? Right. Well, there are biographies or um, academic writing, certainly, on the continental women. There, there is a certain amount in English, though it's not necessarily very new. But this is it. There, oh no, there are there are a cut. There are a couple of books I would definitely recommend. However, there are three books really that I'd say go to, and the first is Antonia Fraser's groundbreaking. Boudicca's Chariot, The Warrior Queens. I mean, it's not a new book now. I think it was published in 1988, though often reissued. And it covers warrior queens as she sees them, you know, right through from, um, from early history mm -hmm. to her present day. But that's got some absolutely compelling patterns that she draws out. Mm. The other two, more recently, that, that, that I noticed particularly, as again, drawing out the patterns, sort of looking at, at queenship across Europe in a broader way. One is uh, the rise of the female kings in Europe, 1300 to 1800, by William Monta, that was from um, Yale, a few years ago. And the other is one by Sharon L. Jansen, The Monstrous Regiment of Women, Female Rulers in Early Modern Europe. Mm. And uh, both of those, all of the three of those, I'd heartily recommend. Excellent. Well, you have been so gracious with your time. Um, is there anything else that you want to add that I haven't asked that you think is important? Well, I guess only the question of what happened to the age of queens and are there any echoes for the present day? Mm. Now, you and I are speaking the week after mm. a woman has just failed to win the world's most powerful office. Mm. I wrote, of course, at a time when that all looked hopeful. Mm. Nonetheless, you know, we do have women at the helm now in, in England and in Scotland, Angela Merkel, Christine Lagarde. So, Although I'd see this 16th century age of queens as ending, really, with Elizabeth I, and then, you know, one sees it again in, in the 18th century in Russia, the age of Catherine mm -hmm. the Great, I would like to think that an example of women holding power, as, uh, as major as we saw in the 16th century, doesn't ever entirely go away. Mm. I mean, perhaps what's just happened in the States shows that many of the challenges these women still these women face then are still relevant today because i do believe they are you know you can see the same sort of patterns mm. um but nonetheless i like to think you know that that 
two steps forward, even if it's then one step back, you get there in the end. I'd like to think, put it this way, that in the game of Queens, there are still some moves to play. Yes, I would like to think that as well. So <laughs> I'm American, so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. Well, we won't go any further than that. Um, <laughs> on that note. So the new book is Game of Queens, and you can get it where all books are sold. It's a wonderful book. And uh, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and talking to me and talking to. No, thank you. Many thanks to Sarah Gristwood for taking the time to talk with us today. Remember to go to englandcast.com to get links to buy all of her books and find out more about her. She's been so generous with her time and it was really great to speak with her. So Hannah, I've still got your Anne of Cleves episode coming, hopefully by the end of this week, if not early next week. And in the meantime, go to englandcast.com for show notes, check out the tours and the tutor planner, and I will talk with you again very soon. Thanks a lot. Have a great week, everybody. Blow, northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrieg, that soli sam lies on sicht. Men's cool maiden of licht, fair and freight of ponder. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 